0: Good morning. What a terrible and thrilling thing it is to open up the Word of God and exegete His text to His people. It is terrible. This is terrifying. But it's also a thrill. It's not like teaching on many other things. At the University of Mexico, I teach church history and Baptist history. And I'm not as afraid doing that as I am at this moment. Because this is the eternal word of the living God. And the man who stands behind this pulpit is to properly exegete that for God's people. It is through this word that the Father calls people to Christ. And also through this word that God challenges those who are in Christ. And so with that in mind, if you wouldn't mind opening up your Bibles to Psalm 8, and this is so much easier in Spanish. This is going to be difficult in English because you have like 5,000 translations in English of the Bible. We don't have to deal with that in Spanish. So I don't know what translation you have in your hand. And depending on your translation, there can be some confusion that I'm going to try to clear up for us to understand what God really is saying to us here. That should be n- never be something that makes you coward away from the Word of God or fear or, or be discouraged. But it should be a truth for you to want to dig in deeper every time to see what God has to say to us and that you would see the glory of God in His text through the glory of His Son. So, If you would read with me, then I'll pray. And again, you're going to find a couple words that are going to sound a little different. And because I don't, I doubt you all have this translation. And then I will try and deal with that later. So don't get stuck on that little, on that little piece. Here we go. Verse one, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have displayed your splendor above the heavens from the mouth of infants and nursing babes. You have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained. What is man that thou that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Here we go. Yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with the glory with glory and majesty you make him to rule over the works of your hands you have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen and also all the beasts of the field the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea whatever passes through the paths of the seas o oh lord our lord how majestic is your name in all the earth i remember as a child hearing this because my dad found this record from a hippie who became Christian named Keith Green. And in a record of him holding a little lamb over his shoulder, uh, one of the songs was he would sing this. And so this brings back memories of my childhood hearing this, but I never really considered what it meant until in seminary, I had a class that spent seven hours in the psalm. It's called The Ethics of Man. And it blew me away that I brought my children and my wife to watch some of these classes with me. And I said, I finally think I'm understanding what this means. There's, okay, I'm not being Gnostic. There's no hidden knowledge in here. That's just, but with biblical theology, with seeing what the rest of the Bible says about it, seeing what is here, this is awesome. This is awesome. I'm so happy to get to preach this to you this morning because have you ever had an experience where you love it so much, but you don't want to enjoy it by yourself and you have to go get somebody else? I'm here to get somebody else, okay? Come see this with me. This is great. Well, first thing, notice in this psalm, the first verse and the last verse. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Look how it ends. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What are we sing here? We're seeing bookends. Bookends are a way of God telling us, hey, whatever you see in the middle of this sandwich, whatever you see between these two bookends, don't go out too far. Don't end up on some rabbit trail. This is the point of the whole psalm. This is not a psalm about what is man. This is a psalm about the majesty of God. Okay, If you lose yourself on looking at what is man and you think that's the point of the psalm, the psalmist is saying don't do that. Make sure you're seeing this, that the point of this is to express, is to project the majesty and the glory of God over all things. Now let's go back to the first verse really quick. You notice how, uh, I don't know what you have in your hands in front of you. For some of you, it'll say, oh Lord, our Lord. But if you look at the spelling, there's little caps on the first one. And then the second Lord is... Uppercase L, lowercase O-R-D. Does anybody have that? Yes, that's one of the, I, I believe, unfortunate. And that's why when one of the verses that you spoke, that, that you shared today, I think it was the text from the Old Testament, it didn't say that. So I like that version. It actually says Yahweh or Jehovah. Sorry, I'm trying to say it in Spanish now. Um, because you see this where it says Lord with Caps, but the O-R-D is like caps that are smaller. That is the Tetragrammaton, what many call Jehovah. We really don't know how to pronounce that um, because somebody added in the vowels of Adonai with, in the Tetragrammaton. That's why yeah, oh, bah, Jehovah, but that's why some people say it's Jave now. Well, we don't know exactly how to pronounce it, but that is the God. The one and only God who revealed himself to Moses in that burning bush. There are so many titles for God that point out things that he does. But his name is Yahweh. This is the God who does what's called condensation. Condescendencia. Have you ever heard the term that says, don't condescend me, don't be condescending? Well, one of the wonderful things about God is He is condescending. Now, again, that's not condensation in English, which forms on the outside of your Coca-Cola can. And Coca-Cola didn't pay me to say that, so also if you have a Pepsi. But that is the term that expresses how God crosses the boundaries of the infinite to the finite, His holiness to our commonness, commonality, from His eternality to our timeliness. How God comes and he deals with it. This is what makes the Christian faith uh, blasphemous to the Muslim. Do you know that in the Quran, there is nothing in there that guarantees you salvation? You can follow everything it says, and still it depends on Allah's will, whether you can be saved or not. Why is that? Because if there was any formula in the Quran for you to be saved, then that would make Allah condensation that would make him that would make him committed to fulfilling something to a human being and he would stop being god that is why the christian faith is so funny to other people because god has entered into covenant with a mere human he is obligated now and some people say that that would make him stop being god his imminence, not just his transcendence and whenever you see this Lord with the all caps or Jehovah in your Bible, that is saying, I am the God who deals and enters in a covenant of grace with human beings. And the psalmist is saying, Oh God, that is in covenant of salvation. If you don't believe me, someday I would like to give you a challenge to go through Psalm 73. Psalm 73, Asaph or Asaf in Spanish, I'm guessing you pronounce it Asaf in English. Um, he was even in ministry as a non-believer. And he does what's called a flashback in Psalm 73, where he says, okay, now I'm sure God is good with Israel with the pure of heart, but in the past I almost lost everything. I was slipping. Um, and then at the end of the psalm, where he says that, he was. They, it was, was hard for me to understand why is God good to the bad guys, and God is mean to the good guys. That was his, his complaint. Until going into your sanctuary, I understood the end of them. And then he changes all the vocabulary and says, I want nothing here on earth if it's not God. I know you're going to take me in glory. Something happened to Asaph really quick, and then at the end of the psalm, he calls him the name of the Tetragrammaton, Jave for the one and only time in the whole psalm. He calls them, I think, six other titles in in Psalm 73, around that amount. But at the end, he realizes God is in covenant of grace with me. He has invited me in this covenant of grace and calls him Yahweh. Okay, so that he's saying, Oh, Lord, Yahweh, my Adonai, my great exalted Lord, your name is glorious or majestic in all the earth. Wow, I mean, right now, Putin is trying to make his name majestic over your Ukraine. I'm not going to go into the, the details of that. Right now, we, um, in America, you know, in, in British, the way the, the imperialist, imperialism of the British in the past of having India, of having, you know, it's this that, that you have, we have in this earth this small, little, miserable kind of glory over a little piece of dirt. And then you're only going to have it until someone takes it from you or you're dead. But God's name is majestic over all the earth. It's His. All of it. And and look how it finishes the verse 1. Who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. Now, look at this huge contrast. The name of God is so glorious, so majestic. That means holy and I like the argument, if I had time to go into, that the glory of God is this, the holiness of God or the, the majesty of God revealed in creation. Because everything in the human experience that you ever have, there's at least one other that you can compare it with, except for God. These chairs are very comfortable, I sat in when, we're waiting, when we started, but they're chairs all over the world. Here I'm standing in front of English speakers, and this is wonderful. I get to speak my native language, and I struggle sometimes with knowing what words to use. But there are many English speakers in the world. We love to use the term today, oh, he is so unique. He's really not. There's like at least three billion more of him and about four billion more of hers. Everything that you have experienced since you were born can be compared to something else. So that's why we define things. If you ever look in a dictionary, you are seeing something being defined by comparing it to something else. But now, define God. You can only define by definition that which is finite. Define what is finite. God is infinite. He cannot be defined. So when His majesty and glory is experienced in creation, where everything is common, we call it glory. You see that in Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy. And then what is this? Glory is going into the temple, right? It's going going into creation, experience. The world is full of His, doesn't say holiness, of His glory his glory. And then the psalmist is saying that is displayed over all the heavens. And then if, if you want to see how big it is, there's no way to show that, but we can do a contrast. So the next verse is going to go into a contrast. Verse two, from the mouth of babes, you just, you, you were first over all the heavens. It's so great that you shut the mouth of your enemies with the mouth of a small baby. Do you see the contrast of the huge greatness of God's glory down to a mouth of a little baby? Uh, okay, notice if, if I was I was on a submarine in my youth, and we kind of had these war games that we would do with other countries, and you kind of pony show off your nuclear... I was on a nuclear-powered Los Angeles-class fast-attack submarine. And then you go out with your fleet, your aircraft carriers, your F-18s, and your submarines, and you're kind of showing off. You're prancing in front of other countries. You want them to say, don't mess with us. But God is so great that he doesn't have to send out a whole bunch of uh, uh, John Bunyans all over the earth and show how awesome he is. He'll shut everybody up. With the cry of a little baby. He is awesome. He is awesome. Then we go down to verse 3. Now here's where I want to get us to right here. The psalmist is going to have a moment of looking up and then looking in. And that is one of the big things of theology that we need to have. You look at God, and then you look at yourself at the light of what you just saw about God, and I pray to God that we all repent when we see that, and cry out to God for mercy in Christ. And that's what the psalmist is going to do. He's going to look, he's looking at the greatness of God, and all of a sudden he's going to look at himself and say, What? You're, You're with me, God? Look what he says. When I consider your heavens, you notice he was just looking into the heavens, right? God above the heavens, his glory is above the heavens. So when I do that, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, more or less says, I say, or I think, what is man that you take thought of him? And then through the rest of the psalm, he's going to talk about uh, God putting everything under his feet. Have you ever noticed that? I'm going to be honest with you right now. Something I've learned over the years, as long as you're not skeptical and irreverent, it's okay to say, God, I don't understand what you're saying here. It doesn't make sense to me. It's okay. Just don't be irreverent. Don't be skeptical. But just say, God, I don't understand this part and keep looking. And I know this because I'm about to take you to Hebrews 2 in a minute. Because Hebrews 2, the author says, yeah, that doesn't seem to make sense in Psalm 8, but I'm going to tell you why. What is it that God has put everything under our feet, all of his creation? There have been many theories about what this means. Because obviously, you and I don't have all creation under our feet right now. I mean, come on, we can't even handle the virus, much less all of the creation. We can't even handle the microscopic. What about the, the macroscopic? I mean, what people made in God's image are blaspheming God all over the earth today. And this morning on the Lord's day. All right, something's not right with this picture. That he's going to say he put everything under his feet. So some have said the theory that the man here in Psalmate is Adam before the fall, when everything was under his feet. But there's a problem with that. The Bible was not written in English. Actually, this part was written in Hebrew, and he uses the word enosh, which is correctly translated sometimes as mortal, not even as man. It is the word used for mankind that only makes reference to the mortality and the sinfulness of man in Hebrew, so can this be talking about Adam before the fall? Was Adam before the fall made a mortal sinful man no so so what man that's mortal and sinful has God put everything in his creation under his feet? not one so In a minute here, I'm going to say, God, I don't understand this psalm, and I'm going to leave it at that with a reverent heart, and then we're going to go to Hebrews 2, and God's going to answer the question. So I hope you're following with me. Are we okay up till now? Okay, let's keep going. Let's keep going. So I'm going to have you here for another five hours. No, I'm just kidding. So when I consider, verse 3, your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained... What is man that you take thought of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Have you ever stopped and thought about that, though, for a minute? When you look at God's great, and the more technology we have now, the bigger the universe is, and you're thinking, what does God care for little old me over here? Why would God care for us? Actually, it would be easier for God, to be honest with you, to destroy the lot of us. Because it seems like we're the only part of his creation that's rebelling against him. The laws of nature are not rebelling against him. They're still working. The the, the stars, they're fulfilling their function, as we see in Genesis, to shine on the earth. Well, guess what? Unless you have a cloudy sky tonight, you're going to see the stars shining on the earth. They're obeying. But the ones who are made in His image, we are the ones who are with our life preaching blasphemies against God. That is why our sin is against God, first and foremost, because you and I are small mirrors, of God in front of his creation. Everything I do, I am preaching, God does this. So when I lie, I am preaching to all of creation and angels, saying God is a liar. That's why David said, before you, before you only have I sinned. Because David was preaching with his life something about God to creation, which is not true. And so I say, look at us, why does God care to be the Tetragrammaton Yahweh the God who enters in covenant of grace with mankind. Who is he that he would care about me? What is man that you that you take thought of him, and the Son of Man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God. Okay, here is an unfortunate translation. Does anybody's say doesn't say God? It says angels. Anybody's translation says angels. Well, okay. What is going on here? Is this saying that man is made a little lower than God or angels? Well, the word here is Elohim, which is the word like in Genesis 1, in the beginning Elohim created the heavens and the earth. That can be translated as God, gods, or even sometimes men or angels. So which, that's why it's not like there's some conspiracy. I can't trust the translation. It's just sometimes you'll find it where they're saying, okay, well, most of the time Elo- Elohim is used as for God. And have you ever heard someone give the argument, well, if you go to the concordance, if you, if, 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 you'll find that this word is used 112 times. That's a very dangerous thing to do. I advise you never to do that. It doesn't matter how many times it's used. The immediate context is what matters. Well, here is where the translators, if your says God, they looked at, well, in my concordance, it says 100 and something times. Elohim is meant for God, and only a few times it's meant for angels. Well, did you know that there is a Greek Translation of the Old Testament done in North Africa around a couple centuries before Christ. It's called the Septuagint. And if you see it written, it says LXX, Roman numeral 70. Because according to tradition, it was translated by 73 men in a period of 73 days. That's not true, but that's just the tradition. But it's called the Septuagint, and we're going to see, I'm going to be very careful with what I say here. But many authors in the New Testament, when they quote the Old Testament, they're quoting the Septuagint, not the Greek. I mean, not the Hebrew. And I'm going to show you that, because in Hebrew 2, they're, they're going to quote word for word the Greek Septuagint of, of, of Psalm 8. And the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of this that was used in Jesus' day, doesn't say God. It says angels. They saw it as angels. And also, you see where it says you have made him a little lower than God? The Greek Septuagint says, you have made him for a little while lower than angels. We're not made in our essence lower than angels, but we were given for a little bit of time less power than the angels. That's what the Greek Septuagint says. Now, is it an inerrant inspired translation? No. Are there errors in translation in the Greek Septuagint? Yes. Are there errors in the translation of ours used today? Yes. But there's a fallacy, which is called the undistributed middle, where people say where man is involved, sometimes there are errors because we are errant, right? But that doesn't mean that everything a human does has error, okay? In the New Testament, where it quotes the Septuagint, it is, it, it is validating that that is the correct translation, and that's the part we have to agree with. You know why? Because Hebrews 2, when it quotes this, it makes its whole argument on two words, angels and time. And that's part of the Greek translation. So if a New Testament makes an argument based off of that, then it is validating that that, at least that part of the translation, is the correct translation. So because the New Testament authors, or Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, which is probably Paul. Uh, well, we can't know. Because he says that the Greek chant, Septuagint has it right here. I have to take what the Greek Septuagint says here. Because the New Testament says that. And so according to the New Testament, we're going to see that in a minute. Hebrews 2, what this text means is for a little bit of time, we were made lower than the angels, but it's only based on a little bit of time. Now, you're going to say, this sounds like a seminary class, not a sermon. Well, that's the only way to understand what happens when you get to Hebrew two, Hebrews 2. So, now let me, you may say, why do they add the word for a little bit of time? Are they adding to the word of God? No, there, there are implicit understandings in the text. And I don't know if you do this in English, so I'm trying to think if you do. But in Spanish, you can say, espérame un poco, wait for a little. And implicit in that, it's talking about time, even though it doesn't use the word time. And then sometimes, por poco le diste, for by a little, you, you hit him. This talking about distance, you almost hit him, a distance. So in the word little, is implicit, whether you're talking about time or distance, depending on the context. When they did the translation of Hebrews 8, I mean, Psalm 8, and the Greek Septuagint, a couple centuries before Christ, they saw in the context that this little here, you have made man a little lower than angels, that implied in it is time. For a little while, you made them. In other words, when we get to Hebrews 2, they're going to say this is speaking of eschatology. For a little bit of time, you made up lower than angels. But there's a time when that's going to stop, and then you're going to see everything under man's feet. You see what I'm getting at here? Now that's a lot of explanation, but we had to get through that part because now we're going to see what the rest of the text says. And I'm going to show you that I don't think this is man's opinion. I think Hebrews 2 lays this out exactly that way. Okay, so what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas, except I don't see that happening right now. I don't see things under our feet. Can't even handle the sin of my own heart, much less the sin of everybody else, and then the wild beasts out there, and then little viruses. Uh, when I lived in Kentucky years ago, before I started with AIG, I was the internal inter, interim pastor of a Spanish-speaking church in Northern Kentucky, and I just visited them this week, coming because a lady that every time I visit the state, she finds me and says, "You'll always be my pastor." She just died. And so I went and consoled the family, shared scripture with them. And I was, I'm just thinking she was not at the age where I think she should have died. Of course, this is my human thought, you know, then I have to submit that to God's sovereignty. But just thinking, for one virus, this woman's life was snuffed out. And then I read this and it says, everything was put under our feet. Something doesn't seem to match up here. And do you know what? It doesn't match up. And then God is going to be quiet about it for 900 years and not going to answer. And before we see the answer, which comes over 900 years later, that is a good reminder to all of us, right? Sometimes we're not going to understand why God does what he does. And guess what? God doesn't owe us his explanations on why he does everything. But just know he has an eternal decree and he's sovereign and everything is for his glory. So that's what I need to submit to. And so I get to verse 8, and now he's talking about the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea. Man, I wish they would. When I go out fishing here, I don't even catch one. But here it's saying that they're under our dominion. And then uh, whatever passes through the paths of the seas, in verse 9, God, I don't understand. Well, yeah, that's why I gave you a bookmark. Go back to the, O Jehovah, or Yahweh, I am, our Adonai, how majestic is your name. And all the earth. God, I don't understand. Yes, we'll just go back to the beginning. God is majestic over the earth. And that's where I have to leave it and rest it and put my faith in God's sovereignty and leave it there. Now, have you ever heard of the term biblical theology? Uh, I can give you a working definition for what that is. That is how the Bible interprets the Bible. Okay? Did you know that in Hebrews 2... The author, the human author, the words inspired by the Holy Spirit, are going to take Psalm 8 and exegete Psalm 8 for us. And God waited 900 years before he did it. So that's being patient. Let's go to Hebrews 2. Now, the first few verses, let me just give you a quick context. It seems among some Hebrew believers that they had a low Christology, okay, a low view of Christ. And so the author of Hebrews spends the first chapter saying, hey, Jesus is higher than the angels. Okay, It's, it's going against the idea that he's just some angelic being that came down. Kind of like Jehovah's Witnesses today. They think that Jesus, well, the, the word, the Lagos, was the first creation of Jehovah. And some of them have said in the past that he's the archangel Michael. And then this angel became flesh. Well, they forgot to read Hebrews because that's what Hebrews is going against, saying that. And it's proving that. That what was written about the Son in the Old Testament is has a higher Christology than the angels. It's, it's, it takes Christ way above the angels. Okay, that's what we get in chapter one, and then when you first go to the first verses of chapter two, we're still now we're he's still talking about the angels. Then what were the what? Why do we have angels then? Well, we know in Deuteronomy and Galatians, and then here. The angels had something to do with the administering the word to us, the way God gave us the word, okay? And then we get to verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come. Concerning which we are speaking, really quick here. All right, our, we're going to get into some deep theology here. And I love the fact that the young children are here. Because if you don't understand everything, you go back over with your parents through the week and go in it more and more. And that's what's going to instill in them this better biblical understanding and worldview to look at their life for the rest of their life. Because sometimes that just means going a little deeper. And this is about to get deep. It's not too early in the morning, is it? Okay. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. Notice the the last part. Concerning which we are speaking. Where in Hebrews 1 or 2 before this were they speaking of a new world? You won't find it. So what, how can you say what we're speaking about right now, you know, the new world? How, where do you find that in the text? And this is where I am confronted with our 21st century gospel. Because have you noticed, I came to Christ as an adult, 2003 at the end, and all I heard is about going to heaven, going to heaven, going to heaven, going to heaven. And yes, I do believe we go to heaven. I'm not Jehovah's Witness. But have you ever noticed in the scripture it mostly speaks of salvation by the resurrection, not going to heaven? The focus on the, the truth of salvation is on the resurrection? Now, that just means to me that I think I got a little off balance. Okay? We, yes, absent from the bodies is with, present with the Lord. Yes, of course. But the hope we have is not Some dualistic, Gnostic, separating from the material world to a better spiritual world and floating with harps, arpas, harps, on the clouds to medieval theology that we still have not been able to abandon. But it is a new heavens, new earth. It is an eschatological hope. It is a resurrection hope. Look at Paul in Athens in front of a bunch of Greek Stoics. And he is, what, what, what is the one point of his message that caused them to start making fun of him? The resurrection. And so I think in Scripture I'm seeing more balance. Whenever it speaks of salvation, it is speaking not of you just getting saved today and knowing that you're going to be present with the Lord. It also has to do with God's whole eschatological plan. Okay? The gospel is the restoration of all things made in heaven And earth. God loved the cosmos. This is God saving his creation. There will be someday a new heavens and a new earth. You and I will have glorified bodies. It's not just me floating in the heavens and like the medieval theology paintings that we sometimes use to interpret scripture. You just see that point here where he's talking about the new world that we're speaking of. And if you go. Before that, it just mentions salvation. It doesn't talk about the new, he- the new earth. In other words, the whole package deals with salvation. Notice, too, he did not subject to angels the world to come. Whatever's coming. Now, again, I'm going to be careful here. This could be speaking of the actual part that's a millennial, like a, a literal thousand years, or it could be speaking of when we get to new heavens, new earth. I'm going to leave that for you all, you all to study. Okay? Okay? But no matter where you stand on eschatology, we're all hoping for a new heavens and new earth someday, right? I mean, or else you're not an orthodox Christian. And if if you have a problem with that, then yeah, come speak to the pastor myself after. We need to share the gospel with you. But we are all hoping for someday to have a new heavens and new earth, correct? All right. Okay, that's the Christian hope. Jesus is coming back. Okay, now, it's speaking... That this world to come that we're speaking of was not subject to angels. Now, think about what we just said for a little while. We're made lower the angels in Psalm 8. That's the connection that the author's going to make right now. Okay? The angels, even especially the fallen angels, may have some hold on this world right now, may have some way to even control some animals. They have some kind of control here that we have less than them right now. But in our eschatological hope, they're going to lose it. Because that time of us being made lower to the angels is going to be done. And our hope is going to be revealed. Now watch this. Verse 6. But one has testified somewhere saying, now we're going to get an uh, interpretation of Psalm 8 given to us only 900, 950 years later. What is man that thou remembereth him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. Now, this, who's who has a text here that says little while that adds that little time part? Because that's in the Greek text. It is quoting the Septuagint word for word here. So, Is this verifying, then, this being the New Testament, is it verifying that there's an implicit time in the original Hebrew text? Yes. So we have to see it in Psalm 8 as well. And is it verifying that the correct translation of Elohim and and Psalm 8 is angels, not God? Yes. So I should not put God in Psalm 8, in that word. It is saying that subjugation Got it right here. They got it wrong in other places, but here they got it right. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and you have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. Now here is where the author is going to say, yes, I have the same complaint about Psalm 8 that you do. I don't understand it watch but now we do not yet see that all things subjected to him thank you i thought i was being irreverent against psalm 8 i was saying god i don't get it it doesn't seem like what you said here is true that means i cannot come to god with a skeptical heart i cannot say god got it wrong i gotta say there's something i'm not understanding there's something i'm not understanding well that's just because psalm 8 the the genre is poetry it's not really real yeah, be careful with the John, you know, the the genre rules. Sorry, and you know in Spanish, gender, genre and genus are all one word. <laughs> so, I have to remember am I supposed to say genus, genre or gender right now? Okay, the genre poetry does not mean it doesn't mean anything. It's just some mystical kind of gnosis, gnostic kind of beautiful word. It has a real eternal meaning, even in the genre of poetry. And here, the author is saying, I don't see it. And can we at least, not to sympathize, sympathize with this? I mean, according to me in this last week, I I have seen death. I have seen my own wicked heart trying to find its own selfish way. I can't tell you that I'm disciplined in my eating because then, you know, that's one of the things you can't hide. You're all seeing it right now. I don't see things subject under my feet. I live in a country where, just a few weeks ago, right in front of the university with my daughter's studies in our church, a guy just pulls up in the car, grabs an old lady, knocks her down, and steals what she has and runs off. Three streets up from our church, just last month, A guy in drugs goes and he stabs his mother and his sister and I think his grandmother all to death and dismembers them right in front of the church. There's something wrong here. And I think the only part of Hebrews 2 I can say amen to sometimes is this part where it says, but now... Verse 8, the last part, we do not yet see all things subjected to him. And this is where I find my eternal hope. This is a contrariety, not a contradiction. In other words, there's an element missing for it to make sense. And God did it on purpose. He wanted you to say, I didn't understand it. You've been set up. Because he was pointing you to somebody greater than yourself. And here it goes, verse 9, but we do see him. I don't see that everything was subjected under our feet, but you know who I do see? I see him, Christ. Do you see that contrast in the scripture? We don't see things are subjected under our feet, but what do we see? We see Christ. We do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. Now, are you seeing why it was so important for us to go through that little seminary class in Psalm 8? Because we're not going to understand what this is saying right here. It's using the Septuagint again. And it is saying, no, Jesus, when he came, was not made lower than the angels. He was made for a little while, around like 33 years. That's why Jesus did nothing on his own but the Father through him. He was taking on the role of the last Adam. He was veiling the power he had available to him. And we're going to see that in a minute here too, and we're almost done. But are we okay so far here, right? Uh, Do you see why sometimes you have to dig into the text? Because then when all of a sudden you start understanding what it's saying, it like blows your mind. Lord, I don't see how you are glorified by three dismembered women in front of my church in Mexico. I don't see that. But you know what I do see? I see Christ. And I see that him knowing this evil world made himself for a little while lower than the angels. And he came and walked among us. What a rebellious group of fools. And he walked among us. He allowed himself to associate with us. Now I'm understanding even more than maybe the psalmist, what is man that you would visit him you see how it's all connected with the salt with sawmate but we do see him verse 9 who was made for a little while lower than the angels namely jesus because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of god he might taste death for everyone for it was fitting for him for whom we are whom are all things and through whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. That is God fulfilling Psalm 8 that he came down When I look at the heavens, the stars, and so many beautiful things that are not rebelling against God, what is it? What is it, go back to Psalm 8, that God would think of me and look down here at us? Well, it was something because he sent his son down to walk among us so he could take us to glory and then how is it that he was perfected through suffering have you ever wondered because if you can't handle that text i invite you to go to latin america and speak with these jehovah's witnesses down there i don't know how the ones up are here but the ones down there they know their stuff they know at least their um guion, their um script script and they will tear you apart on verses like this no not only this i think it's luke 252 where Jesus grew in wisdom or knowledge? That's Sophia, that's actually knowledge. How is it that Jesus, the Son of God, had to learn things? How is it that he did not know when his second coming was going to happen? How is it that he didn't know when who touched him? Well, let me explain that. He did know that was just a way of linguistic way. Of, no, he did not know. And how is it he had to be perfected? This is why biblical theology is so important. That's why understanding the sum of the text, when you look at one verse, is so important. It's because he veiled a lot of that. He veiled his omniscience. He did, while he was on earth, he did not know when the second coming is going to happen. He veiled it because he took on the role of the first, of the, of the first Adam upon himself as the last Adam. You and I all died in Christ, in, in Adam, in the first Adam. And then we are made alive in Christ, the second Adam. He is fulfilling where Adam failed. He was made, perfected. When we say perfected today, we're thinking about we're sinful humans, so we're perfected. We're brought to more of a moral stance. No. And the Bible, when it says perfected, remember, you have to take it out of our context, the way we use words a lot of times today. It means made complete. Made complete. There's nothing lacking in Christ, but he decided that he would come and fulfill that Adamic covenant and obedience. His, 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 his positive obedience in his life, and his passive, what be, many people call passive obedience on the cross. He was taking our place. And he was veiling a lot, living as a man, vera homo vera deus, truly man, Truly God. And just to think that for a little while, he would come down here and that he would allow himself to be made a little lower than the angels as well so that he could take you and me to glory. So whether they're saying that psalmate speaks of the millennial kingdom or the new heavens and new earth I'm not going to argue that right now. But it is speaking of one of those things coming in the future. So if you would mind turning with me quickly to Revelation 21. And what I want you to think of today is not how do I interpret this through my eschatological system. Let's just come together and enjoy what it says right now. Let's just enjoy it. I know I have to turn off the little uh, system thing sometimes too. Let's just enjoy it together. Okay? I don't know what kind of things have happened recently that have you quietly doubting God, especially if you're young. Sometimes when we're young, we have these very unrealistic and humanistic expectations of our faith. And I I always know, it when, it, especially when somebody tells me, I used to go to church, but such and such happened and I don't go anymore. Whenever I hear that, I'm thinking, Yeah, Jesus warned John the Baptist of the same. Jesus will be a scandal for you. Scandaliste, where we get the word scandal from, a stumbling block. Jesus is more than willing to be a stumbling block to you if you have expectations of him that are not biblical. But this is where I have my hope. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, And there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death there will be there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain the first things have passed away and he who sits on the throne said behold i am making all things new and he said "Write, for these words are faithful and true If God is willing to allow those who are reading Psalm 8 900, 950 years of saying I'm going to say I'm putting everything under your feet, but I'm not I'm going to let you just sit there and try and guess what I mean by that. And then not tell us until Hebrews 2. It's not like Hebrews 2 gives a new meaning. It just clarifies the meaning that was already in Psalm 8. How much more can we wait our small span of lives with some doubts about why certain things happen and know that we have an eschatological hope, not one of justifying or reasoning out every little detail that happens in the world, in our lives, and just know that these promises are eschatological. They're not exactly for now. But what we do see now, what does the author say? What is it that you do see? him and where do i see jesus his glory the glory of god in the face of jesus second corinthians 4 6 as revealed in the text of scripture so with all that i want to finish going back to psalm 8 and now let's see if we don't understand it a little better and we're ending so oh the great i am the god who came down to a murderous Moses, a murderer, and said, I am. The same one in Isaiah, that you will know, Isaiah says, God through Isaiah, you will know when I come. I, he who am speaking here, I will come visit you as the Messiah, and you will know, and you will know that I am. And then Jesus says, therefore you will die in your sins, the Pharisees, because you do not believe that I am. I am am the one who spoke to Moses through the burning bush. I am the one who promised, the one who is inspiring this word through Isaiah and promised that when the Messiah comes, you will see the one, the author of Scripture. You're going to see me and know me. And and if you don't, if you still deny me, you're going to die in your sins. That I am, you can know now. So, oh, I am. Tetragrammaton, Yahweh, Jehovah, Our Adonai, our great Lord, how majestic, glorious is your name in all the earth. Well, I don't see it. I see a lot of sin. It's still just as majestic. None of this as out of his control he is sovereign he is awesome he is glorious who have displayed your splendor above the heavens from the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease when i consider your heavens the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you have ordained what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him Yet you have made him for a little while lower than the angels and you crown him with glory and majesty. Well, I don't feel crowned. Yes, but Jesus was crowned in glory and majesty. And now we are adopted as his younger brothers in the resurrection. Romans eight twenty nine. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea. But guess what? That's because we're going to reign with Christ, our Lord and God, but in the resurrection, our older brother. Now, that doesn't mean we're the same essence as him as God. No, that's talking about how inheritances are shared. That's, again, we have to be very careful when we look at the stuff of respecting the, the context there. So that is an eschatological hope that all this is, we are going to rule it with Christ. And so therefore, I conclude saying how great am I, or Mexico as they call it, I am a Jehovah Junior. There's one preacher saying that. No. The only correct answer to this is, oh, Javé, our Adonai, you are my Adonai. You are not some distant one. You are mine and I am yours. How Glorious or majestic is your name in all the earth. And none of this is wonderful unless you see him today. Young man, young woman, middle aged older man, older woman, whatever your age on earth may be, this is either scandalous to you or it's precious. The only difference between those two extremes is if you see him now, Jesus, who came. If you don't see him, if you don't put your eyes on him, look to him. You will continue to be miserable, and you're going to keep coming church to church, finding someone to make you feel better about it. I, there's nothing, You may die because of things that are happening right now. You may lose it. This church may be the ones who are going to be there at your funeral while your cold body is being put down in the dirt in Kentucky. Okay, so, you, so you're so you not going to see it here that way, but what you will see here is Christ exegeted from this eternal word, and that is where our eyes need to be, our only hope. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your eternal word. Thank you, Lord, for, for Christ. I don't have to have all the answers to why of every detail, but I do know that this time, as your word says, Is temporal, but the world to come was not subjected to angels. You when this time is over, we'll put everything under our feet because you have already put it under Christ's. Lord, thank you for the great salvation, redemption in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to not interpret you or even invent a version of you through our own experiences and our own context and environment, but that we would see Christ exegeted in Scripture and thus in His beautiful face see the glory of God. And I pray this, Lord, in Jesus' holy name.